months now, um, and uh, I've, I've really just loved being able to get to be a part of this family, this community here at Church at Cane Bay. Um, I'm the worship pastor here, so normally um, I get to sing with you guys, and, and this morning I get to talk at you for a little bit. So um, I thought that it would be fitting that we would talk about worship this morning, uh, but before we do that, I just kind of want to tell you guys a little story. Um, it was probably two years ago or so, uh, we had these, this group of friends, um, and there were these two friends in particular uh, that were, they were the kind of people that, um, this is going to sound mean, but it, it might, it maybe just is mean, and that's okay. Um, they were the kind of people that, like, you would only want to spend a certain amount of time with. You know what I'm talking about? Like, let's just be honest here, right? We're, we love Jesus, we love people, but, like, there are certain people that you only want to spend, like, a certain amount of time with, right? And they're, they're great. Like, they make an awesome first impression, but they're just those people that, it's like the couple that you just kind of want to get food with, like, once a month, and, like, it's good. You know what I mean? After that first hour, hour and a half, you're just kind of like, okay, I think, I think we're good on this, right? Well, so, um, the wife of this couple had this idea, and her idea one summer was that she wanted to go to uh, Cedar Point. Now, Cedar Point, for those of y'all that aren't from the Midwest, you don't know what I'm talking about. But Cedar Point is just amazing. I mean, Cedar Point has the biggest roller coasters in the nation. That's not an exaggeration. Um, they have a roller coaster that goes 120 miles an hour. Like, it's insane. They have the biggest roller coasters in the nation. Um, and they have a Chick-fil-A there at Cedar Point, which, guys, we live in the promised land, right? Okay. There's Chick-fil-A on the way to work here, right? Um, in Michigan, for a while, there were no Chick-fil-A's at all. So we would drive three hours, and we'd go to Cedar Point, and we would get the biggest roller coasters in the nation and Chick-fil-A for lunch. Come on, right? I mean, there were people that would live in Traverse City, which is, like, way up there in Michigan, and they would drive, like, ten hours to get to Cedar Point. And that was, like, their theme park. I mean, I'm telling you, for people that live in the Midwest, it's, like, Heaven, Cedar Point. Like, we're, we're pretty close there, right? Okay, so she has this idea. She really wants to go to Cedar Point. It's going to be so much fun, right? And so we decide, we're trying to plan, okay, well, when are we going to go to Cedar Point? And the summer kind of gets away from us. And the whole time she keeps saying, you know what, we really need to go in the fall. We really need to go in the fall. Well, in the fall, Cedar Point does this thing called Halloweekends. And um, for those of you that haven't been to a theme park during Halloween time, I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about it. It's terrible. Um, it's just people dress up in scary costumes. The park's only open for a certain amount of hours, so it's just packed. And there are people just kind of like waiting around corners t to jump out and make you wet yourself, right? So, so she decides that the best time to go to Cedar Point this year would be during Halloween weekends. It's more expensive. There's more people. There's scary people walking around the park. Not a good idea. I don't like this idea. But you know what? She convinces us. They badger us. They badger us. And eventually we're like, you know what? Fine. Let's just do it, right? Like, what's the worst that could happen? So we go to Cedar Point together. And um, when we get there, we start to realize that she is deathly afraid of roller coasters. Like, deathly afraid of roller coasters. And, and we're just kind of all looking at each other like, well, isn't that what this park is about? So anyway, um, she hates roller coasters, won't go on the roller coasters. Um, and so if you guys have ever been to a theme park with roller coasters and you have like an odd number of people riding, it's kind of strange, right? It's kind of awkward. Because what happens is you have to pick who's going to be the odd man out and who's going to sit by the total stranger while you scream like a girl on a roller coaster, right? And it's just strange. So um, not only is it awkward because we have an odd number of people that are riding now, 
But on top of that, she didn't want to be left alone when she wasn't on the ride. Because after all, there are scary people walking around the park, right? And so the idea of roller coasters terrified her. The idea of people, of Freddy Krueger jumping out from behind a statue of Snoopy the dog terrified her as well. And apparently, like, she thought this was going to be really, really, really fun. And when we got there, it was like her absolute worst nightmare. You guys feel me? Okay. And so I bring that story up because there are a lot of times in our lives where what we want, our intentions, we can come into it with the best intentions, we can desire for something to be the case or for something to happen, but then our follow-through doesn't quite follow through. You know what I'm saying? Like our actions don't meet our intentions so much of the time. Like there was this story this past week um, that, so I took a break from Facebook um, for a matter of months, just deleted it and just kind of took a break, you know. Sometimes you need that little bit of Selah, you know, just a little bit of rest. And so I took a break off of Facebook, and uh, I, I got back on it just, just a couple weeks ago. And um, I made a deal with myself that I would not get into Facebook arguments anymore. Like, that was a big resolve for me. Um, and, and I tend to like to kind of, I don't know, I don't like the conflict, but sometimes I just get into it anyway, and you guys have been there, like you just start commenting and then it just snowballs. And so um, I, made a, I made a resolve, I made a promise to myself, and, and honestly kind of to God, it was a conviction, and I just said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that anymore. And so I've been on Facebook for a solid two and a half weeks, and of course this week um, I saw something that I just had to jump in on. I had to, I don't know, I just had to jump in on it. And so um, it was actually a family member, which made things even a little bit worse. And um, we were interacting, and at first I saw the way that he was talking to other friends of mine online. And, and it was pretty rude, and it was condescending, and it was disrespectful, and it was just very prideful, right? And so I decided to jump onto Facebook, because that's the best forum for this conversation, and to tell him exactly how prideful and rude and disrespectful he was being. And in the process, realized that, I, I, you know, comment after comment, it just snowballed. And then it, it goes into these, like, accusations and all of these different things. And, and I, I hit a point where I looked back on the conversation and I read the comments that I had written. And I realized that I was being prideful and disrespectful and rude in the process, I was like, he can't be so prideful. He can't be so disrespectful. He can't be so rude. And then I realized it was me. I was the one to blame. And so I gave him a call. We talked it out. He removed the whole thing. It was, it's wonderful. You can just delete it, right? They say it's never gone. That terrifies me. But either way, um, sometimes what we desire to do and what actually happens are two very different things. Would you agree? It happens quite a bit. We'll see in the Gospels, this kind of stuff was dealt with all the time. Jesus dealt with this specific group of people called the Pharisees. You guys have probably heard that word. And the Pharisees, see, their intentions were great. They actually really wanted to please God. They wanted to make God happy. And they did everything that they possibly could 
to make God happy. They were actually like the religious elites of the time. They were the priests. They were the people that, that carried out all of the sacrifices, and they were the people that did all of the rituals, and they, they followed all of the rules, and they really, really wanted to make God happy. Um, and, and what we find in this story today is that they actually didn't um, make God happy in the way that they interacted. And so this morning, what I kind of want to talk about is I want to talk about how we can see these blind spots. I want to talk about how we can see where what we intend and what we believe and what we, what we want to do, what we aspire to, and what we actually do when those two things don't match up, where we can see that in our hearts. You know, I believe that God actually gives us these tools that we call stories. And a lot of the times these stories will show us the blind spots. They'll illuminate the things that we can't see. And God uses them to speak to us in a way that, that he uses very few other things. And stories, I think, are really special. Um, there's, this, there's this story in the Old Testament. Uh, you can check it out in, in Samuel. It's, it's, a, it's actually really cool. But um, there's a story in the Old Testament where uh, King David, you guys probably have heard of King David, right? He's the most famous king of all of Israel. And, and King David, they say, they say he's a man after God's own heart. Like, he really, really wants to do the right thing. And, and there's a story where, where he sees this woman named Bathsheba, taking a bath on the top of the roof, Bathsheba, I don't know, it's a thing, um, and so he sees this woman named Bathsheba, and obviously he sees her bathing herself, and he decides that he wants her as his wife, and so he devises this plan, basically the way that the plan works out is that he, he finds out that Bathsheba is indeed married to a man named Uriah, and so he actually sends Uriah out with the with his battalion and he sends him out to war and he tells the general hey put him in the front lines and right as the battle starts getting really intense pull everyone else back and leave him stranded see what happens and so the general does and Uriah dies and so not only has David lusted after another man's wife not only has he taken another man's wife as his own but he's murdered the man that was married to Bathsheba in the first place. It's just this terrible, terrible story, right? And, and the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. His intentions are right, but he can't see it. He can't see it, and he's doing this terrible, terrible thing. Well, the prophet Nathan comes to him, and the prophet Nathan tells him a story. The prophet Nathan says there, there was once a man, and he was very rich, and he had a lot of livestock. And then there was another man, and he was very poor, and he only had one lamb. And the rich man had a guest come into town, and, and as Charlie alluded to last week, uh, when a visitor came into town, it was customary for you to put them up. It was a, the, the right thing to do, that you would take care of them and that you would feed them. And so the way that Nathan tells the story is that the rich man had a guest come into town, and the rich man, instead of using one of his many, many, many livestock, uses the one poor man, the poor man's one lamb. And he takes it from him, and he butchers it, and he serves it to his guests. And when David hears this story, he is furious. He actually says, surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. He hears the story of this insane evil, this injustice, and he says, this guy's got to die. There's no other way around it. And then Nathan tells him, hey, that story was about you. And you've done something even worse this rich man in the story. You took Bathsheba as your wife, and you had her husband killed. And, and David sees the, the sin 
the evil that he committed. He sees it for what it is. He can finally tell where he's come short, where he's, where he's fallen short. And, and he repents. And he asks God for forgiveness. And see, sometimes stories will do that, right? Sometimes stories will kind of just like sneak in, right? We all have this, this little Pharisee inside of us. We all have this time, these times where what we want to happen and what actually happens are two very different things. Sometimes our worship is not pleasing to God, even though we want it to be. And we all have these little Pharisees inside of us. And God uses stories to sneak past that little Pharisee and to speak to our hearts. C.S. Lewis calls this little Pharisee the watchful dragons of religiosity. I just kind of like that phrase. He says that stories, he wrote a whole collection on the power of story and the power of myth. And, and he actually says that stories have a way of sneaking past the watchful dragons of religiosity and cutting straight to our hearts. And so this morning, as we jump into the story that Jesus teaches us here in Luke 18, I want you to open yourself up to it. This morning, I just encourage you to hear this story for what it is and to let it speak to you in the way that God is intending it to. Amen? You guys with me? All right, let's dig into it. So, Luke 18, verses 9 and 10. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, let's get just a little bit of context here before we keep going. Context is so important when we're reading the Bible. There can be things that are going on underneath the surface that we completely miss if we don't understand why it was written, to who it was written, what are the characters, why are they significant, you know? You, you guys get what I'm saying? And so the Pharisee, let's just start with the Pharisee. We've talked a little bit about who the Pharisees were. They were with the religious elite. Um, something that a lot of people don't know about the Pharisees is that they intended to keep the law, which was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so well that they actually created other laws on top of laws. So it was kind of like, well, if the speed limit is 50, we're going to make sure to go 40. We're going to put posted signs that say 45. And, and then because the posted sign is 45, we're going to really make sure that we only never go above 40. You guys get what I'm saying? They had these laws, and it was so important to keep the law to the letter to them. They believed that that was going to make God holy, that their holiness, their righteousness, their following the law to the letter was going to make God happy. And so they would make laws upon laws upon laws to make sure that they didn't break the original one. And they were very intentional about it, and they were very... Uh, very almost regimented about it, like this was just what they did, this was their life, they had given their life to serving God in this capacity, and they were very highly respected individuals, I mean, if you were common Jewish folk of the day, you thought that the Pharisees were just the top, like they were the best, they were the, they were the holiest, they were the ones that were set apart, and they were the ones that were called by God to be priests, and so um, you, you respected what they had to say, you thought that they were you know, the, the most respected people in society, if you will. And then on the other side, we have the tax collector. Now, the tax collector is the exact opposite. Like, it's almost comical how opposite the tax collector is. You see, Rome had invaded Israel at this point, and they were occupying Israel. And as part of this occupation of Israel, they were taxing Israel through the nose. Like, scholars believe that the average Israeli family would have paid a majority of their income in tithe. 
So, I mean, we're talking, we have Israeli families that are having a hard time feeding their children because they pay so much in taxes, okay? And, and with that political situation in mind, what the tax collectors were is that they were normally Jewish men that had decided that they were going to work for the Roman government. And so they decided, you know what? I know how I'll make my living. I know how I'll feed my family. I'll take money from all my neighbors, right? And not only was this, I mean, everybody hates the tax guy, right? It was tax day this past week. Like, no one likes paying taxes. I get it. But this goes so much deeper. This is so much more politically subversive than that. I mean, you're talking, this is your neighbor, and he now works for the government of Rome. You hate that Rome occupies your nation. Could you imagine if China occupied our nation and started taxing us? I mean, could you imagine what that would feel like? There's so much chaos, and there's so much political angst, and there's anger, and then all of a sudden your neighbor's like, oh, hey, by the way, it's time to pay Rome. Right? Can you, can you guys see what I'm saying here? Tax collectors were hated with a capital H. Like, they were hated. Actually, throughout the Gospels, you'll notice there's a trend. They'll actually say tax collectors and sinners. They just group them together. I'm not joking you. They just group them right together. Like, could you imagine that? Like, could you imagine engineers and sinners, right? Like, plumbers and sinners, market consultants and sinners, right? Now we've got social media managers and sinners. Politicians and sinners. Oh, never mind. We're good. Um, So Jesus starts with these two characters, okay? He starts with the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then he starts to talk about what their worship looks like. And we'll, let's just go on through. We'll read through and then we'll dig into it. Luke 18, 11 through 14. It says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Hmm, yeah, you guys get it already. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the first thing that I want to pull out of this passage this morning is that they were going to the temple to pray. Now, if we were in ancient Israel right now, if we understood their context, we would know that this is an act of worship. This is the way that they worship. This is essentially them going to church. You guys took time out of your Sunday morning this morning to get in your car and drive here to church at Cane Bay, and it's because you wanted to worship God, right? Is that fair? And this is what they were doing. They were going to the temple to pray as an act of worship. Now, this parable is all about acceptable worship. This parable is all about the kind of worship that pleases God and how we can do that. And actually, uh, Luke explains what this parable is about at the beginning of the passage. It's funny because for those of us that have been in church for quite a while, we can just read right over these whole chunks of scripture and we, it just goes right over our head because we just don't even listen. You know what I'm saying? There are times where we'll, we'll even dig into it. We'll do a Bible study we, and we'll still totally miss the point, right? Um, and so I just encourage you guys, really, really pay attention this morning. But Luke explains what this is about at the very beginning of the passage. It says, 
in 18.9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. See, this, this parable, you, you see that they're, they're praying, right? And so the, the first reaction is for us to go, oh, this is a parable about prayer. But it's not. There's actually so much going on here. Praying, praying at the temple is just their act of worship. But see, Luke tells us that this is about trusting in yourself as being righteous and treating others with contempt. See, now, now it changes a little bit. Now there's a twist there. You see, this is about being so holy that you have no room at the table for anyone that's not like you. That's what this parable is about here. Jesus highlights the Pharisee. The Pharisee is one of the most respected individuals in ancient Jewish culture. And he says the Pharisee was not the one that had it right. The Pharisee goes up and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy. And Luke says at the very beginning of the passage, before Jesus even jumps into the story, this is a story about thinking that you're righteous and treating others with contempt. This is a story about looking down on others because of your religiosity. You see, the, the Pharisee, he, he wanted to follow all the rules. He wanted to make God happy. And how he understood he would make God happy is by following all of the rules. And so he followed every single rule to the letter, right? He did everything that he thought he was supposed to do. But the whole time he missed the heart of God completely. Why? Because scripture tells us that the heart of God is for the broken. The heart of God is for the oppressed and the marginalized. The heart of God is for the people that are far from him. The heart of God is for the tax collectors. The heart of God is for the sinners. It's for the dirty people, the people that you can't stand, the people that get under your skin, the people that just don't get it, the people that are completely different than you, God is for them. That can be a hard pill for us to swallow. This is why John writes that we can't love God and hate our brother. He says it's impossible. 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, the Pharisee went to the temple to, the, to worship. He thought that he was pleasing God. He thought that he was worshiping God acceptably. And God wasn't having any of it. His worship was not acceptable. James actually writes, and he tells us what acceptable worship looks like. In James 1.27, he, he writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why? Why is that acceptable worship? Because that's what God's heart is. God's heart is with those that are afflicted. God's heart is with the political traitors. God's heart is with the dirtiest people you know. God's heart is with the sinners and those that are far from him and those that are defiant to him. God's heart is always with the people on the outskirts. And the Pharisee missed this completely. The Pharisee thought that God's heart was with the people that fell in line. The Pharisee thought that God's heart was with the people that did everything right. And he couldn't have been more wrong. 
see his pride and his piousness blinded in him. And I think that this is a message that we need to hear. Okay, guys, I was born into the church. I was raised in the church. I, I work in the church, right? Like, I love the local church. There's something about being religious your entire life that you're very susceptible to this pride. You're very susceptible to this Pharisaic tendency. These little Pharisees that are hiding away in you come out so easily and so quickly because other people don't look or act or think like we do. Well, they don't get it. How could they not get it? Because they, they're not you. <laughs> because they have a completely different life than you, because they had completely different parents than you, because they had a completely different situation than you, and God's heart is to bring them close to him. And so often we miss this because we allow these little Pharisees to come up and to, to puff up our pride, and we can be blinded, and we can completely miss the fact that God is for those on the margins. You guys with me? Now, this leads me to our first big takeaway. I believe the first thing that Jesus teaches us in this passage, there are two. Remember, there are two characters, Pharisee and tax collector. And so I, I really believe that there are two things that Jesus is trying to teach us through this passage. And the first thing is this. If our worship doesn't lead us into greater love and empathy for those around us, we are missing God. If our worship does not lead us into greater love greater empathy for those around us, we are missing the point. The Pharisee thought that he was good with God, and it didn't matter what he thought about the tax collector, and he could not have been more wrong. The kind of worship that's pleasing to God is the kind of worship that leads us into greater love and greater empathy. Would you guys agree? Now let's, let's take a look at the second character in this story real quick. Okay, the second character, the tax collector. I believe that Jesus intentionally uses a tax collector in this story. This is why. Everybody hearing this story would have immediately pictured the worst person they know. I'm telling you, this is, this is the reality of their time. People understood tax collectors to be evil, greedy, selfish, horrible people, and nothing else. They had completely written off the tax collectors. Yeah, they used to be a good neighbor, but now they're a tax collector, so they're dead to me serious. And so Jesus intentionally uses a tax collector in this story because he knows that the shock value is going to be insane. Okay? Let's take a look at what the tax collector's worship was like. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, which is a form of mourning, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you guys see that word justified in there? Did you catch it? So that word justified, it actually means made right with God. So Jesus tells a story about a man, a Pharisee, that's supposedly already right with God, right? And he says that he missed the point completely. He didn't understand the heart of God. Then he moves on to the tax collector, who everyone hated. They were understood to be the scum of the earth. There was no question about it. 
And Jesus says that the tax collector is justified. That the tax collector is made right with God. And, and if you notice, Jesus doesn't go into their, their moral code. He doesn't go into their social merit. He doesn't talk about how well they kept the law at all. He says that they both came to the temple to worship. The Pharisee worshipped this way, and the tax collector worshipped this way. What's the major difference between the two? The major difference here is humility. The Pharisee comes all puffed up, and he stands in front of God, and he says, God, thank you so much that I'm not like this guy over here. And the tax collector says he stands far off. He doesn't even feel worthy to come up to the altar. He stands far away, and he beats his chest in mourning. I mean, he's broken about his sin. He's a social outcast. He's made the wrong decisions. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was made right with God because of his humility. And we can learn from this, right? Because this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we can memorize chunks of scripture. We can be at church every single Sunday. We can get all of our doctrine perfectly in line. We can be faithful givers. We can serve. We do all of these things. But if, we, if our heart is not in the right place, we can completely miss the whole thing. Jesus is telling us that humility is the way to enter we have to approach him in humility. The, the Pharisee thought that be, by being hyper-religious, he could elevate himself above others, right? But what is the example that Jesus sets? Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the king of the entire universe, no question. And when Jesus comes, he washes his disciples' feet in service. And Jesus tells his disciples that to be a follower of him means to be a servant of all. If anybody had the right to be prideful, if anybody had the right to be holier than thou, wouldn't it be Jesus? And yet Jesus shows up and he says, here's the example, to be a servant to all. He has every right to take any pride in anything that he wants to, and Jesus is the definition of humility. And so when we worship Christ, when we see the face of Christ in worship, it should never puff us up. We should never feel better than anybody else because Jesus died for everyone, right? So the cross creates this level playing field. When we worship Christ, we should be in awe of the grace and mercy that he has shown us. You see, the Pharisee missed it. He completely missed it because he comes in and says, thank you that I'm not like these, this guy. And by saying thank you that I'm not like this guy, he is becoming exactly like that guy. Did you catch that? By the Pharisee saying, thank you I'm not like the tax collector, his pride and his sin is rearing its ugly head and he is exactly like the tax collector and he can't even see it. Our worship should Always be, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we see the bigness of God, 
and we get a glimpse of who he is, we should understand just how small we really are. And it should humble us. And it should change our perspective and the way that we approach the world around us. So this leads us to the second thing that, that Jesus teaches us, I believe, in this passage. And that is that our worship means nothing if it doesn't lead us into greater humility. Our worship means nothing if it doesn't lead us into greater humility. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of biblical scholars will say that this is the constitution of the kingdom. This is how we live in the kingdom of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in five, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are those who are poor and realize their need of him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So how do we please God? How do we worship him in an acceptable way? We humble ourselves and we realize our need for him. I can guarantee you guys, if you are not humbled when you approach God in worship, and, and when I say worship, I, I want you to understand, I'm not just talking about this, this morning when we sang four songs. I'm talking about our entire lives. At Church of Cane Bay, we believe that worship is our entire lives. It's spending time with and glorifying the good God that created us and loved us. And so as we do this, our worship, our devotion, our study of scripture, our prayer life, our worship corporately should always lead us into greater humility. We should always see the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and be humbled at the fact that he even wants relationship with us. Our religion and our religiosity should never lead us to look down on anyone. Because who are we but a sinner in need of grace? Amen? So, with that being said, I, I want to tell you guys a story about when I went to prison in Georgia. Don't worry, I, it was a ministry trip. I wasn't actually in prison. But um, it was about eight years ago now. And I went as a chaperone for a youth choir student choir during junior high high school years and uh <laughs> i went i went as actually like a worship leader for a student choir which is super cool because they know all the harmonies and they're singing like eight parts and i only know two you know um and so i would lead worship in the hotel lobby at night after we had gone out and done mission work all day and this student choir would sing at different places um you know, from homeless shelters to, I mean, you name it, we went all over the place. And one of our stops was just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And I don't know how, don't ask me how, because I have no clue, but they got us access into this maximum security prison. And I mean, when I say maximum security, I mean maximum security. Like, like we walked in and, you know, they're all staring you down like you already did something wrong and they're going to keep you, you know, um, or like, we would talk to this lady, and then we would take everything out of our pockets, and then we would get all scanned by 18 different metal detectors. And then we went in, and we talked to the warden. And the warden was so mean. Like, it, it was a lady warden, and, like, I'm telling you, she she was so mean. Like, have you ever been through, like, TSA at the airport, and you're just like, man, you could just enjoy your job a little bit more. Like, I, I promise, like, I... You can check me, do whatever you got to do. It just, can I get through here without feeling like you believe the world's going to end tomorrow, right? And so um, this lady, this warden was just like 
she made a TSA agent seem like Barney the dinosaur. Like she was, she was so mean. And, and she tells us all of their rules. You know, if you're going to come into this maximum security prison, um, you, you got to know these rules. And I mean, this maximum security prison was the real deal. Like a big majority of these men were in for life. And so, I mean, you can just start to assume what they had done. But, I mean, we're talking, like, murderers, serial killers, like, everything under the sun that you can imagine that would put you away in prison for life, these men had done. And so she explains to us all of the different kinds of criminals that are locked up in this maximum security prison. And then she tells us that we're going to be in the same room as them for roughly an hour and a half. And the main rule that she gave us was... Do not make eye contact. This is strange. I've been in other prisons. They never said that. Um, But she said that they had had visitors that had made eye contact with a prisoner before. And the prisoner thought that they were being looked at crossly. And they acted out in violence. And so in an effort to protect the visitors, she just said, hey, just, just don't look at any of them in the eye. That's a new rule that we have. Have fun, kids. You know, like, and so she sends us into this big like cafeteria type of room and I remember it so vaguely because God did such amazing things there and um, we were sitting there waiting for the prisoners to come in and they all had to line up single file and all get checked and all this stuff and as they were filing in okay so have you ever been out to dinner right and your spouse or somebody that you know says hey don't look now but so and so over there is blah 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 what do you do you look immediately, right? I'm not even discreet about it either. I'm just like, like, <laughs> my wife hates it. She gets so embarrassed. But um, so as these prisoners file in, warden says, number one rule, do not make eye contact. What do I do? I make eye contact with every single one of them. And as they're walking in, I'm thinking in my head, this is terrible, but you guys will understand I'm thinking in my head, I wonder which one of these guys has killed someone. Serious. I'm thinking in my head, that guy, he's got face tattoos. He's totally a serial killer. I'm not joking you. This is terrible. This is what was going on in my head. I made eye contact with every single prisoner that came into that room. There were honestly probably about 60 of them. And all 60 of them, I looked at them and I judged them. And I wondered, I wonder what they did to get in here. I bet you that one's a killer. I bet you that one did this. I bet you that one did that. And I was just coming up with all these scenarios in my head while we're there to minister. And so I was not part of the presentation that we had for the prisoners that morning. I was just a chaperone. And so I sat down in a chair just like any other prisoner. And I watched the presentation happen. And so this choir, they sang a bunch of songs. And and it was all like, you know, gospel songs and, and stuff like that. And um, at the end of the presentation, they laid out the gospel just plain and clear. And so what, what they did was there was this movement. There was this skit that they did to the song Everything by Lighthouse. I don't know if you've heard everything, but the chorus goes, you're all I want, you're all I need, everything. And um, it shows this girl, the skit shows this girl walking through life and and she's just trying everything that she can to just fill this void this craving that she has and she never feels content and she tries boys and she tries drugs and she tries cutting and she tries theft and you know she does all of these things and nothing is cutting it but as 
as she's trying all of these things, they all kind of grab onto her. And so there are these characters in the skit that are just pulling her down, and she keeps walking, but she can't bear the weight of her sin any longer. And then Jesus' character steps in. And he takes them all off of her and onto him, and he dies because of her sin and shame. And then he rises again, he conquers sin and death, and he goes to the girl, and he takes her hand, and he invites her to walk in the new resurrection life that he has for her. Powerful. Unbelievably powerful. And the whole time, I'm sitting there, looking at all of these prisoners, wondering what they've done to deserve to be there, and I think in my head, they really need to see this. And immediately, God started speaking to my heart, like in a way that I can't even describe. I closed my eyes, and for a moment, I felt like I wasn't even in the prison anymore. It was a very strange experience. One of those times where God just does something that you can't quantify, you can't put it into words. And God spoke to me word for word to my heart. And he said, you really need to see this. You really need to see this. And I pictured all of my sin, all of my shortcomings, and all of my shame being put onto Jesus and him dying with it. And then him raising to life and inviting me to the resurrection life that he has. And I was, I was in awe. I was humbled. And I'm not going to be ashamed to admit it. I was bawling my eyes out in this prison. I mean, like, I'm almost crying right now. So you guys, it's Jesus stuff. I don't cry about anything else. Not movies, anything. Just Jesus stuff. But um, I was crying my eyes out because I realized how awful it was of me to feel so much better than these men that had just, they'd been raised in different circumstances. Who knows what was thrown their way, but they were seeing the gospel. And the cross was leveling the playing field between me and them. And I saw myself as no better than them because I needed Jesus as well. And so I opened my eyes because my eyes had been closed this whole time. And and I made eye contact again with every single one of them. And I started to see them differently. I'm not lying to you. It was just an instant change in my heart. I started to see that man's a father. That man is a brother. That man is a son. And his sin and his brokenness has locked him up for the rest of his life. Jesus is inviting him into new resurrection life. And I started to cry again. <laughs> it was this powerful experience. And you see, I think this is what our worship is supposed to do. I think that is what our worship is supposed to do. I think it's supposed to recenter us, reorient us, and bring us back. And remind us of the gospel. And remind us that there is nothing good in us. But because of Christ, all things are made new. 
And it's supposed to change our heart for others. And we're not supposed to feel like the Pharisee where we're holier than thou, where we're, I don't understand why they don't get it. I don't understand why they live that way. But instead, we should worship like the tax collector and we should say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that that is acceptable worship to Christ. And so the band's gonna come up and we're gonna sing one more song. And and maybe you are in this room this morning and maybe this story has snuck past your watchful dragons of religiosity. Maybe it has snuck past your little Pharisee. And maybe you actually see your worship, your religion, your faith journey for what it actually is. And maybe you see that you've been missing the heart of God. Maybe God is bringing to mind right now a person or a group of people that you have forgotten the love of God towards. And God is convicting you and he's inviting you to step into that love. Or maybe this morning, as you heard this story, you identify more with the tax collector. Maybe you came in here, you don't really know what this whole Jesus thing is about, but you heard maybe you should go to church, and so you stepped in the building, and and maybe you're the one that's standing far off, the one that's beating yourself up over your brokenness. And No matter where you are this morning, whether you identify with the Pharisee, whether you identify with the tax collector, wherever you are this morning, I have good news for you. And that good news is that God wants to meet you where you are. God wants to meet you where you are. If you're stuck in your religiosity, God wants to humble you. I promise it's gonna hurt just a little bit, but then it gets better. And if you're here and you feel like you're far from God, I'm here to tell you that God is not far from you. He loves you with a love that is undescribable and contagious. And I invite you to step into that new resurrection life this morning. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you speak so clearly to us as we read scripture. Jesus, we thank you that we have seen you this morning. We've seen your heart. Jesus, we pray this morning that our worship would be acceptable to you. Jesus, thank you so much for everything that you've done for us, for who you are to us. God, I pray that you would break through any kind of religious barriers that we have, that you would break through any kind of shame that we might have this morning, and that we would be able to approach you in confidence knowing that you're good and that you love us.